0: Well. I apologize for interrupting our conviviality.
1: <laughs>
0: so, you know, I think this is really a a period of time and a culture where we just receive messages by the dozens about how we can achieve happiness by consuming getting objects, getting titles, getting jobs, maybe even getting relationships. Um, And yet I think most of us find it really doesn't quite make us happy. So what is it that might make for a, a genuine pursuit of happiness, a successful pursuit of happiness? And so that's what I'd like to spend a little bit of time talking about this morning. You know, I think contemplative teachers have recognized for quite some time that there's a link between kindness, between compassion, and our own happiness and contentment. The Dalai Lama wrote, when we feel love and kindness toward others it not only makes others feel loved and cared for, but it helps us also to develop inner happiness and peace. And he also wrote, if you want others to be happy, practice compassion. If you want to be happy, practice compassion. (laughs) And I think also, if we look at some recent scientific investigation, it's also the case that there's a link between altruistic action and our physical and mental health, repeatedly documented in, in a number of studies over the past 15 years or so. So the experience and and of, of happiness and contentment and these reflections that that experience may have in our physical and our, our mental health I think may be a kind of echo of something that's provided to us in our evolution. So recent evolutionary thought, rather than seeing our basic human nature as being one you know, red in tooth and claw, something in which we're kind of in vital competition for resources with each other, a survival of the fittest may really be an evolution that reflects survival of the kindest. So I want to talk just for a few minutes about about some of that. You know, often I think the popular press attributes to Charles Darwin this survival of the fittest kind of perspective. Uh, And it's actually a misinterpretation of Darwin. It was a contemporary of his, T.H. Huxley, who was most responsible for that perspective and for seeing human nature as being fundamentally competitive uh, and sometimes even violent. And that if empathy and compassion were to be manifest, they had to be specifically trained in our educational and other kinds of settings. But Darwin himself in in his book, The Descent of Man, published uh, some 12 years after his Origin of Species, argued that our social instincts, the kinds of uh, natural impulses that make for our caring for children, that make for our affiliation in groups, that contribute to our generosity, really are a fundamental part of human nature. And while our capacity for competition, even for violence, is also a part of that nature, that's not the whole story. That kindness and compassion really, in a sense, are hardwired. So if we you know, look back at what evidence can be gleaned about our Cro-Magnon ancestors, one of the things that emerges is that this coming together of people in groups, the shared responsibility for providing for and raising children, that these are features that very likely contributed to the survival not only of those individuals but of course their ability to pass on their genes and for the survival and the evolution of of the species. So there really is a sense in which our kindness and compassion, I think is naturally selected, becomes part of what enables us to continue on as a species. I think we can also see evidence for these pro-social instincts in our contemporary evolutionary cousins. If you look at chimpanzees, and bonobos in the way that Franz de has. He has a very interesting recent book, has written several of them about his lifelong study uh, of, of empathy and compassion in other animals. But his most recent one is entitled, The Age of Empathy. And if you're interested in this sort of thing, fascinating reading. And he points out that chimpanzees and bonobos will become quite upset when they see another of their group in difficulty or hurt. And they will also care for members of their group who are born blind or who acquire some kind of disability. So I don't think as humans we're alone in this evolved capacity for kindness and compassion. I think we can also simply look around and watch what happens between mothers and young infants and see the sort of deep empathy that's manifest to convince us that, you know, that kindness, that compassion really is a part of our fundamental nature. The aspects of our human nature that I've been talking about, I think are also fundamentally a part of the very sources of our own liberation as individuals. Roshi Joan Halifax In her book, The Fruitful Darkness, writes the following It is understood that the craft of loving kindness is the everyday face of wisdom and the ordinary hand of compassion. This wisdom face, this hand of mercy, is never realized alone, but always with and through others. The Buddhist perspective shows us that there is no personal enlightenment that awakening occurs in the activity of loving relationship. So I think that's a very interesting statement. You know, in Buddhism, uh, particularly in Mahayana tradition in Buddhism, the Bodhisattva ideal, as exemplified in originally Avalokiteshvara, and then the mythical bodhisattva images of Kuan Yin in China, Chenrezig in Tibet, Kanon, Japan, all often portrayed as putting off or delaying their own enlightenment, their own nirvana, in service toward others, in helping all to awaken, But what Roshi Joan is saying here is that our own enlightenment is itself dependent on that loving kindness and compassion with other individuals. And that it manifests only in that social context, not alone. So in reflecting on how we might most skillfully Manifest kindness and compassion in our own lives, I think sometimes we give in to a temptation to fantasize about uh, you know, becoming the next Albert Schweitzer or Mother Teresa, doing these great things that change the world, that save others. And yet I think that most often our most genuine expressions of compassion Happen in the little things that we do with others, not in some great and highly visible acts, things that we spontaneously do when we encounter the suffering of another individual. As I was preparing for today's talk, I came across a story that I'd like to share with you. Now, I don't know whether the story is true or apocryphal, uh, but It underscores something for me, so let me share it. Mark was walking home from school one day when he noticed the boy ahead of him had tripped and dropped all of the books he was carrying, along with two sweaters, a baseball bat, a glove, and a small tape recorder. Mark knelt down and helped the boy pick up the scattered articles, and since they were going the same way, he helped to carry part of the burden. As they walked, Mark discovered the boy's name was Bill, and that he loved video games, baseball, history, and that he was having lots of trouble with his other subjects, and that he had just broken up with his girlfriend. They arrived at Bill's home first, and Mark was invited in for a Coke and to watch some television. And the afternoon passed pleasantly with the two of them, a few laughs, some shared small talk, and then Mark went home. They continued to see each other around school and had lunch together once or twice and then both graduated from junior high and ended up in the same high school where they had brief contacts over the years. And then finally, the long-awaited senior year came, and three weeks before graduation, Bill asked Mark if they could talk. Bill reminded him of that day years ago when they had first met. And he asked, did you ever wonder why I was carrying so many things home that day? You see, I cleaned out my locker because I didn't want to leave a mess for anyone. I had stored away some of my mother's sleeping pills, and I was going home to commit suicide. But after we spent some time together talking and laughing, I realized that if I had killed myself, I would have missed that time and so many others that might follow. So you see, Mark, when you picked up those books that day, you did a lot more. You saved my life. So we may never know what kind of ripples our acts of kindness and compassion initiate in the world, and how much some of them may literally save another's life. in light of kind of obvious benefits of kindness and compassion, not just for the recipient, but for the person offering it. How is it that at times these things can seem in such short supply? You know, it seems to me that uh, it's in particularly short supply every election year cycle. (laughs) So I'm reminded of that. So what is it that could explain that? Uh, If indeed, these things are hardwired by our evolution, how is it that often so little of it gets expressed? I think the most powerful inhibitor of kindness and compassion is fear. So, you know, we're often fearful of persons we see as being different from us. Rather, uh, whether by race or, or culture or tribe or politics, and when we perceive someone as being different, we can also not only have fear arise and withdraw from that other individual, but I think it changes the very way in which we see. You know, there have been studies done looking at manipulating whether someone is identified as being like oneself or different from oneself. And it's very likely when someone is perceived as different from us that we see in their face threat even when no ill will is intended by that person. That kind of misperceiving is one aspect of what the Buddha referred to as delusion, which along with grasping or clinging and aversion, forming the three kleshas or poisons that are at the root of our suffering. Recent research in this burgeoning new field of social neuroscience, I think has also shown that our brains demonstrate less activity in these areas that appear kind of specialized for resonating with the experience of other individuals. They show less of that activity when we see someone we identify as other than us, as different from us, suffering, or when we perceive that person as not behaving fairly in interaction with us. When we see the person as similar, spontaneous and natural kind of resonating occurs. We sort of simulate exactly the same activities in our brain as occur when we ourselves are suffering or in pain. But if the person is seen as different, often not so. So is there anything that we can do about that? I mean, is that just another kind of given? We evolved our capacities for empathy and compassion within families and and small groups, and so maybe that's what we're stuck with? Roshi Bernie Glassman offers us something that I think is, is very helpful in this regard in his three tenets of socially engaged Buddhism. So I want to talk about those for a little bit. The first of those tenets, he refers to as not knowing. Not knowing. So, through our meditation practice, what we do on the cushion or or on our chairs, where we calmly and, and without judgment, watch what arises in the mental continuum, I think we can begin to see how quickly the mind moves to interpretation. A low rumbling sound is heard, and immediately it's the truck passing by outside, or a high warble, and equally immediately it's a songbird. But I think if we rest in that awareness... And simply, without judgment, try to see what is. We can begin to perceive that there's actually a little gap between that raw sensation and the interpretation. And if we extend our practice into our day-to-day lives, mindfulness, as much as possible throughout the day, we may be able to begin to see that there's similarly a gap in social situations between seeing another individual and coming to those categorizations and judgments that may define that person as other. So this kind of gaining a a calm, resting awareness, a clarity in our practice and extending it into our social interactions with others is what Roshi Glassman is talking about. That's for him this not knowing. Simply coming to each encounter with another individual without those conceptualizations without those judgments and categorizations. The second of those three tenets he refers to as bearing witness. This is also something that we practice in our sitting. Hmm? Bearing witness is simply allowing our awareness to be fully present. Gets distracted by some thought, image, feeling that arises, gently without judgment, bringing it back whether our focus is on the breath or perhaps on the field of awareness itself as in kind of open presence or shikantaza practice. And I think it's that same attitude that we intend in our sitting practice. Nothing to do, nowhere to go, just fully right here that we can bring in bearing witness with another individual and simply providing them with our full presence you know I think most of you may have had at least at some point in your life when you were in need or suffering gifted with an individual who was really able to be fully there for you and you know how wonderful that feels we feel received we feel heard Roshi Glassman's third tenet is loving action. If we can really rest in that not knowing and bearing witness with another individual, we can begin to realize and come to trust that kindness really is part of our human nature. We don't have to engage the conceptual mind and think through all the alternatives and plot and plan how it is we're going to be helpful to this other individual. Kindness spontaneously arises because it's a part of who we are. And if we can trust in that arising kindness and not be tempted to engage that conceptual mind so heavily, I think our kind actions can often also be more skillful because those self-interests that come online so quickly with conceptual mind less likely to be a part of what we offer to someone else and therefore more likely that that other individual is going to feel that our <coughs> kindness is coming from a kind of spontaneous and wholehearted and selfless intention. Think about when you've been suffering, in need, and how quickly you're able to perceive another person's intention who makes a gesture of help. If that intention is seen by you as selfless, as wholehearted, we open up. We receive that help. But if it's perceived as having an element of self-interest, maybe the person seeming to, you know, want to be seen by others as a helpful person or as uh, someone who does good deeds or maybe simply as wanting something in reciprocation, what happens? we close down. We may even reject that help. It doesn't feel genuine to us. John Dido Laurie, in his book, Invoking Reality, The Moral and Ethical Teachings of Zen, put it this way. True giving means that the giver and the receiver are one reality. When giving happens that way, it's not about doing good anymore. Often in order to do good we subtly need to be better than the person we're helping. We reach down into the decay and help the downtrodden, the less fortunate, the helpless. This is not the practice of a bodhisattva. The bodhisattva does not practice from a distance. He or she is right there with those being assisted. Covered with the same mud they climb out together because self and other are not two separate entities. So sensing another person's intentions of selfless and open-hearted kindness allows that person to open to our help, to receive it and to feel nourished and not diminished by it. And when that happens, I think we have the key to our own happiness in giving, in kindness, in compassion. Because there's a kind of closed loop of feedback that occurs, an amplifying loop of feedback in which the other person perceives our genuine gesture, opens, and is able to be helped as an equal as really a part of us and we in turn experience a kind of happiness and contentment in doing that even when it may feel as though it's difficult or perhaps painful for us to be really right there with with the individual to be helpful There's another kind of of fear that I want to touch on that I think inhibits kindness and compassion. And that's the fear that grows out of our sense of personal impoverishment. We all have times when we feel as though we've got nothing that's left to give. And we become afraid that if we try to give what little we have left either tangible or emotional resource is going to be depleted but as the Buddha stated thousands of candles can be lit from a single candle and the life of that candle will not be shortened happiness never decreases by being shared So that sense of diminishment, even in those times when we feel we don't have much to give, I think itself is a delusion. You may have experienced how in those periods, if you can muster the presence to just be fully with another individual, what occurs? Rather than feeling depleted, we feel as though our burden is lifted. And as though our net happiness is actually increased. Roshi Norman Fisher uh, gave a Dharma talk some time ago on this koan of Shu and the old woman's obstacles. And he said it in this way When you really love others and you're willing to have your heart broken by their suffering, that is liberation your eyes and your heart are open. And even if you yourself are suffering, it's perfectly okay. And you don't mind it at all. So I'd like to close this morning with a few words that were written by Ralph Waldo Emerson. I think they're probably familiar to a number of you. But in this period where uh, we were bombarded with messages about what it takes to compete for a material success and status and power and prestige. I think the words are worth repeating. To laugh often and love much. To win the respect of intelligent persons and the affection of children. To earn the approbation of honest critics and to endure the betrayal of false friends. To appreciate beauty. To find the best in others. To give of oneself. To leave the world a little better. Whether by a healthy child, a garden patch, or a redeemed social condition. To have played and laughed with enthusiasm and sung with exultation. To know that even one life has breathed easier because you have lived, this is to have succeeded. Thank you. So, please share your observations or questions. Howard?
2: I have to say one thing, because it was just on NBC News last night, they had the People to Make a Difference. Uh-huh, yes. about this woman called the Angel of Water in New out to the um, fire hydrants to get fresh water and collects it in containers and takes it up several flights up in Mm -hmm. these buildings where she lives where there's no power to take fresh water Mm -hmm. to uh, shut-ins and elderly people. And they were celebrating her and they were following her with the camera. And uh, because of what you just said, I, I get it now that she was really happy just doing it. Uh-huh. and taking it up there even though she's become, she's become nationally known as the angel of water mm-hmm. but that wasn't the reward for her now, now. and when she got up with these other people there was this feeling that they were equals even though they were praising her highly on camera for a national audience mm-hmm. she wasn't there wasn't, any, now, you know, that hierarchy. there wasn't any different status going on between her and these. And these elderly people, she was helping, mm. and I can tell she was getting at least as much happiness out.
0: At least, they were.
2: yeah, yeah. And uh, that, that was really amazing. That was really brought it home.
0: Wonderful. Thanks for sharing that.
2: I was very moved by the story about the two boys in school, yeah. I and mean, I've heard many stories like that. you <coughs> never realized how much impact. It was. And what came to mind is maybe a bit tangential, is that what we call compassion, uh, loving kindness, meta. Other traditions might call call prayer, uh, mm-hmm. like direct or indirect. And sometimes you might say to somebody, "I will pray for you," and that person has an immediate understanding and connection. And sometimes that would be direct prayer. And there's indirect prayer when um, the person doesn't know. You just put out these ways in that tradition, and we do that in other kinds of matter. Mm-hmm. But my question is more so, the impact of on knowing, the other person knowing what you are doing, could be obvious, like what Bill said to other guy mm-hmm. He felt but sometimes you hear somebody's uh, concerns, and you don't necessarily, aren't necessarily um, received by the person mm-hmm. this, this, this energy as being compassionate in your heart, mm-hmm. and how much language may play a role, like you say to the person you know, I have this strict, strong sense of compassion for you, or I have this, this concern, now, it may come out in language, but should be able to amplify that so maybe our words are more direct uh-huh. in terms of the healthy process versus maybe the Bodhisattva who just goes and does it and has no desire or expectation
0: of making what they are doing explicit. Yeah, yeah. Thank you, Evan. Because I, and I think that's a really important observation. You know, a real part of the bodhisattva path is both not knowing and not being invested in the fruits of your actions. You do what you do because that's what arises. Uh, and then what happens is not in your hands. Uh, please. We
1: saw a documentary at the searching for Sugar Man. And he truly expressed, without knowing anything about his philosophy, the philosophical path. And uh-huh. it was the most moving. I mean, I've just never anybody like him, mm-hmm. in terms of um, just accepting whatever was, and being totally humble, and uh, thinking that any work, I mean, he was a brilliant musician, but he could do roofing, or gardening, or cleaning up, or anything that was work, that was helping others, mm-hmm. and, you know, wasn't good and giving everything
2: away to family. and
1: yeah. It it just touched
0: my heart. Very moving. Yeah.
2: And
0: you know, it was inspiring to know somebody could exist like this. Uh-huh. Yeah. It illustrates how much depends on our intention. You know, every act can be an act of kindness and compassion if that's our intention no matter how small or trivial it seems.
1: eventually emerges as something you could never have planned mm-hmm,
2: it, mm-hmm. because it's
1: coming from a different source and it was a wonderful teaching about this place of in meeting somebody not having all the meanings or all the interpretations or all the past history placed on, on the person or on the situation yeah, so
0: that yeah. I wait. and what a wonderful practice in learning how to allow that Yeah. thank you Yes, yes. Yeah. That's the coda to this talk, and by the way, it ain't easy.. <laughs> well, perhaps we should close for the morning so that we can bring the facility back to its pristine condition. So thank you all again for being here and see everybody again, hopefully in another couple of weeks. Have a good rest of the weekend.